0: 10 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michelle Kinge, from Surrey, United Kingdom. Darkness and Daylight or Lights and Shadows of New York Life, Chapter 10 by Helen Campbell Night Mission Work New York Streets After Dark Rescue Work Among the Fallen and Depraved Searching for the Lost An All-Night Missionary's Experience Though the old Fourth Ward, of which Water Street was once the symbol and summary, Is still counted as the worst in New York. Yet there is small choice between that and the bloody Sixth Ward, named long ago in the days of the notorious Bowery Boys. That once name of terror has given place to a type far beyond it in evil, the hoodlum, born most often of Irish parents, and knowing liberty only as the extremity of license. Even fifty years ago, the trees still grew all the way up from Water Street out into Chatham Square and on through the old street, and the generation before that knew it as a region of gardens and thickets and orchards. For years the remnant of one of old Peter Stuyvesant's pear trees offered its blossoms and fruit to the passer-by, till a memorial shoot was transplanted to a more congenial spot, and the old tree which had known the very beginning of things, for the bowery fell under the axe, and was snatched by the relic-maker, to reappear in innumerable walk-in-sticks. Tilbond, or Bleecker Street, is reached, and even beyond these once fashionable precincts, the streets that open on either side represent as motley a crowd as the sun shines upon. Every nation is there, every form of trade and general industry, and every token of the oppression which pertains to the sweating system, has chosen this region as its own. At night, Myriads of tobacco workers pour out from the swarming tenement houses, chiefly cigar makers, who manufacture in their filthy homes. Great factories for underwear are there, with the flock of women and girls who are employed in them, while every house has its contingent of sewing women, whose machines run on jumpers, overalls, and all the forms of stitching given over to unskilled labour. The sewing-women and shop-girls form but a small part of the throng moving through the Bowery after nightfall, filling the theatres, the dime-museums, the low-concert-halls and all the forms of cheap entertainment that flourish in this region. Nor is it from this class that the Florence Night Mission on Bleecker Street from whose windows one sees the moving throng is filled. Strange as it may seem, these women, who have reached almost the lowest depth of want and see no outlook beyond, are singularly free from the tendencies that drive more fortunate ones to the streets. So far as the record books of both the Florence and the Midnight Mission bear testimony, both give the largest percentage of recruits as belonging to the class of domestic servants, though every order is represented. For nearly all of them, the inevitable end is in store, from bad to worse, always and steadily downward, till at the last the painted, hideous faces looking out from the dens of water or Cherry Street have lost all resemblance to woman save in form. In the region around Bleecker Street is a less hopeless type, and here in 1883 was founded the Florence Night Mission, which has done some of the most efficient work accomplished in this direction. It is a monument, this old house. Once the quiet home of people who knew the street in its best days, The man whose money provides this refuge for women and makes mission work possible in this locality gives it in memory of the little child whose name it bears. And the four brief years of the little life could hardly ask more abiding memorial. Inside the chapel of the mission, her sweet face looks down on the motley crowd who every night from eight to eleven filled the room, and the innocent eyes of little Florence Crittenton gaze upon sights that living they could hardly have known. The father, a prosperous businessman, who, like many New Yorkers, had never looked into these regions and knew tenement houses only by name, went in one day to a daily prayer meeting where a stranger rose and described a mission which had recently been begun on Baxter Street by himself and Mr. Henry B. Gibbard. Mr. Crittenden listened, was interested, went with the speaker, Mr. Smith Allen, saw for the first time the degradation and horror of the life, and later visits deepened the impression made upon him. When the baby he idolised was taken from him, there seemed no interest in life so strong as this one of offering redemption to the class of men and women who filled the slums and dives of this part of the city. The house at 29 Bleecker Street was chosen. The two rooms of the lower part were thrown into one for a meeting room and the upper part fitted up with beds while the lower served as kitchen and dining room. Mr. Allen was engaged as the all-night missionary. A matron was put in charge and a superintendent of homework appointed. It was April 1883 that the mission opened. The card for night work bearing these words. Any mother's girl wishing to leave a crooked life may find friends, food, shelter and a helping hand by coming just as she is to the Florence Night Mission. In the first year, 176 fallen women and girls were received into the home. They had a terror of the ordinary reformatory, or home, and often hesitated when the mission card was given them. I want to do better, but oh I can't be shut up in one of those places, was the cry of numbers, to find that no stipulations were made, and the utmost liberty was given, that they were cared for with food, clothing and medicine if necessary. Told to stay as long as they wished, or to leave if they felt they must, all this was a method quite unknown to them. Soon every bed filled. Many begged to sleep on the floor, and each night the number of unhappy creatures at the meetings increased. To meet this demand, the house next door was bought, and both thrown into one with a building at the rear, so that today it has the accommodations of the average small hotel, and there are rooms for every order of work that must be done. All who enter the house have a share in the work, which is under the general direction of the matron. Here the inmates stay till employment can be secured, till they can be sent to their own homes, or as must sometimes be the case to the hospital to die on entering the mission a full record of the case is made in the record book with the statement of age nationality denomination residence whether father or mother are living and if so where when received by whom brought and when the guest leaves a record is made of the date of discharge, to whom and where sent, and if subsequently heard from, this fact is noted, with any information that will enable the mission to keep track of her. This, it will be seen, is in reality a short history of each life that finds shelter here, and each year has seen an increasing number. In 1890, there were 365 inmates. The average age was 28. There were double the number of Protestants as compared with Catholics, and in the entire number, but four Jews. In nationality, Americans led, there being 173, 73 Irish, 55 English, 10 Scotch, two Swedish, 19 Germans, one Welsh, one coloured and 31 whose nationality is unknown, made up the list, which for the student of social problems is a most suggestive one. Every night the women who saunter past these mission rooms can hear gospel hymns being sung, hymns that remind many of them of happy homes. And the days of their youth. There is a welcome for any who choose to enter and spend an hour. A few words of gospel truth, a reminder in Christ's own words that whosoever comes to him shall not be cast out, and then more singing and a prayer. From the houses around come sounds of uproarious merriment, coarse jests, and laughter but here in the midst of all the vice and degradation is a haven of peace and rest. Many women come and come again. Some are glad to stay. It is the night work of the mission in which the strongest interest centres. The congregation, when it assembles in the little chapel, is made up not only of the women and their companions, who are cabmen freight handlers, saloon keepers and countrymen who have come to see city sights, but also of thieves, drunkards and beggars. 60,000 women and men are estimated to spend the night in the streets of New York City, and thousands of them are never seen in the daytime. It is impossible to reach this class unless one goes among them and this takes one into low concert saloons, cellar lodging rooms, or to any point where experience has taught that they may be found. Now and then a father or mother who has heard of the mission work comes and begs that they may be helped to find a long-lost daughter. A photograph is sent, or a minute description is given, and the missionary looks critically at the throng of faces assembled in the mission room, hoping that he may find the one for whom home is waiting. The low concert halls and stale beer dives offer the fullest field. These places are most often in the basement, reached by rickety stairs or through dimly lighted hallways. Often the rooms are small, the ceiling low, and the air is always full of the fumes of tobacco and beer. The little tables placed against the walls are all taken, and the centre of the room is filled with dancers, most of them young men and girls, and nearly all of them still in their teens. Many of the men are loafers, living in part on the girls' wages, and in part by thieving and gambling. Some of them are country boys, who have come in just to see. They will come again, and in the end find the woe and shame that lurks under this cover of amusement. The girls, some of them are country girls, drawn by this magnet of city life, who came seeking honest employment and found betrayal. Many are honest working girls who wanted dress and fun, and were caught in the meshes of this net before they realised what the danger was. Now and then, the keeper of one of these dens will himself warn a girl to leave before it is too late. He knows the unsuspicious girl who has been brought in by some villain quite unconscious of danger. In a dance hall near Hest Street, is a man who has often worked against his own nefarious business in this fashion, and he has a waiter equally ready to send away such a case. A girl of this type sat at one of the tables one evening as the missionary entered, bringing with him the photograph of a girl he hoped to find. He showed it to Tom, the waiter, who studied it attentively. He had never seen her, and said so but as if he felt urged to help someone in like case, said, There's a girl across that needs you, but she won't hear to have you go right up to her. I'll fix it. Wait a little. The soft, troubled blue eyes of the girl looked up surprised as Tom said in her ear, There's a gentleman across the room wants a word with you. She rose involuntarily and followed him to where the missionary stood. Here's a little girl that is going to make a big fool of herself, Tom said with a nod towards her. And turning to her, he added, I know this gentleman, Mary. He will help you out if you'll listen to him. Mary turned to run, but a girl near laid her hand on her, and two or three others came up as the missionary appealed to them. Leave for God's sake, one of her companions cried. "'before you get into the same pit we're in.' "'Yes,' cried another, "'if you want bad luck from beginning to end "'from the moment you drink your first glass "'till you're killed, maybe in a drunken row, "'just stay on here. "'There's no peace in it. "'It's bad luck, I tell you, from beginning to end. "'Better get out while you can. "'I wish I'd never begun.' "'Mary listened, more and more uncertain, "'and the missionary's detaining hand.' led her at last out into the night, under the stars, and on toward the mission. Then she fell back as she saw the name over the door, and cried out, "'Oh, I can't go in there and be locked up. mumps and mumps, let me go!' "'You shall go when you wish,' the kind voice said. "'Only come in now and stay just for tonight. "'You'll cheat me, you'll lock me up as soon as I'm inside!' she cried. The house is not to live in, it is only to stay till you have made up your mind what to do, was the answer. And presently, the frightened, trembling girl passed in, and in another day realised from what she had been saved. Often just such a case is found, or a girl who has but just taken the first evil step, and who turns away and seeks to undo the wrong, there is a lower order. Mulberry Street is close at hand, with the low dives for which it is noted. Stale beer at a centre pint is the drink, and a description of one of them, kept by Rosa, an Italian woman, may stand for all. The room was small, and it owned no furniture, save a bed, a stove, and benches around the walls. At the foot of the bed, stood a bench used as a counter where Rosa perched when she looked up to the picture on the wall, a high-coloured saint with a halo, before whom she crossed herself when difficulty arose. A crowd of men and women in all stages of drunkenness sat about on the benches, some listening to Accordion Mary, playing an asthmatic accordion, some of them singing to it. They looked up interestedly at a fresh arrival, and watched a chance to pick a pocket. When the last stage of drunkenness came on, the victim was thrown out to make room for a fresh comer. On the floor lay a woman who had reached this stage. She was behind the door, as if she had tried to hide, and Rosa, with many nods, indicated that she was brought in by Ruff's who had given her drink on the bowery and then enticed her here. It is the story of many. The missionary slipped a card into her pocket. When she wakes, homeless and despairing, she may possibly turn toward the mission. On the benches, poor creatures were stretched, with swollen eyes and cut faces, some of them beaten almost to a jelly. One of them, as we looked, rose up suddenly, a woman with dishevelled grey locks and mad, wild face. Sing! Sing! she wildly screamed, and Rosa nodded assent. Sing! Where is my wandering boy tonight? she cried again. Instead, the missionary sang. Art thou weary? Art thou languid? Art thou sore distressed? Come to Christ and know in coming he will give thee rest. More, more, called the crowd, and the shrill voice of the grey-haired woman rose above the rest. To satisfy the crazy mother, the missionary sang in rich and melodious voice, where is my wandering boy tonight? The boy of my tenderest care. The boy that was once my joy and light. The child of my love and prayer. Go find my wandering boy tonight, Go search for him where you will, But bring him to me with all his blight, And tell him I love him still. Silence reigned. One by one the noisy inmates had settled down, and when the last line was sung, scarce a whisper was heard. A man crawled out from under the benches, and sat on the floor looking up through tears. A woman who had lain in the fireplace, her hair filled with ashes, burst into sobs, maudlin tears perhaps, but sometimes they mean repentance. The missionary read a few verses, looking about to see who were listening. Over in one corner sat a pair whose appearance was unlike the rest, and he wondered how they came there, for they were clean and of a different order. As he reached the corner, the young man slowly rose and whispered, I want you to help us. I'm a printer. Three days ago this young lady and me went on an excursion, We got drunk without knowing it, you might say, and this is where we brought up. Will you help us, both of us? He was sent to a decent lodging house, and she was taken to the mission to go a few days later back to her own home to repent all her life that one incautious hour when she wondered what whiskey was like. Even from lower dives than this, there is now and then one rescued, as the following incident related by All Night Missionary Gibbard will show. All Night Missionary Gibbard's story. I had been holding meetings in a small room in the midst of the slums of Baxter Street, going out into the alleys, saloons and dives of the neighbourhood, and literally compelling the people to come in, I made frequent visits after dark to Hell Gate, Chain and Locker and Bottle Alley, resorts for sailors and low characters, and invited them to the meeting. The proprietors, though in a bad business, generally treated me with courtesy, though I sometimes succeeded in taking nearly all their customers away. One summer night, I started out to gather in my audience. The streets were full, men, women and children of all nations, kindred and tongues lined the sidewalks, sat on the doorsteps or stood in the middle of the street talking. Almost every store was a clothing establishment kept by an Israelite. On the sidewalk and in the front of stores, lines of clothing, new and second hand, were arranged for sale while father mother sons and daughters urged upon the passer-by the merits of the goods should any one by chance cast his eye upon a suit of clothes he would be seized and carried by main force into the store and urged to examine those goods mine friend we will give you a bargain this is the original and only cohen the sheep is on baxter avenue a mud gutter band in front of one of the dance halls was making discordant music while children of all ages from the babe just out of the mother's arms to the young girl in her teens jostled each other in a rude attempt at dancing bare-headed coloured women in soiled calico dresses with sleeves rolled up stopped before entering the brothels to join with rough-looking sailors in a breakdown From a cellarway leading to filthy underground apartments came the noise of a piano, drummed by unskilled hands, while the painted woman at the door tried to induce victims to enter. Crowding my way through, I entered a saloon. The place was filled with the fumes of rum and tobacco. The ceiling was low and dingy. The floor waxed for dancing at one end of the room was an orchestra including a bass viol with a bad cold a fiddle with three strings and a wheezy accordion at the other end was a bar to which after each dance the floor manager invited the dancers to walk up and treat your partners gentlemen white and black mingled indiscriminately in the dance a huge negro swung with great force a young white girl who was puffing clouds of smoke from a short pipe. After a word with the proprietor, I began to invite the people to the meeting. One young mulatto girl, in answer to my invitation, said, Me? Go to meeting? Well, I guess you don't know who used inviting. Why, I's a sinner, I is. You don't want no such as I is. I ain't good enough to go to no meeting. Oh, yes, you are. Christ came to save sinners, however bad. He came for the lost. Well, if he came for the lost, as de child he comed for, because I's lost, sure. Guess I'll be over by me by. Next, the sailor drew back in amazement at being invited in such a place to a gospel meeting and could scarcely believe that i was in earnest look here shipmate he said i ain't been to no chapel in twenty-five years not since i left home and went afore the mast i was brought up as good as the next one and used to go to sunday school and church but i got to reading novels and papers full of exciting stories and swung off from home for romance but i got reality i can tell you We talked of home and mother. Soon the tears ran down his bronzed cheeks. And he said, Heave ahead, I'll go for old time's sake if you don't think the walls will fall on me. So one by one, I induced them to leave the dance hall and cross over to the meeting. I had just come out of the place named Hell Gate when I saw a partially intoxicated woman supporting herself against a lamp post and nearby stood a burly negro. The woman was tall and thin, and it was plain even then that consumption was doing its fatal work. She had no hat, no shoes, a dirty Calico dress, was all the clothing she had on, and that was not in condition to cover her nakedness. Her hair was matted and tangled, her face bruised and swollen, Both eyes were blackened by the fist of her huge Negro companion, who held her as his slave, and had beaten her because she had not brought him as much money as he wanted. I invited her to the meeting and passed on. Near the close of service, she came in. With tearful eyes, she listened to the story of Jesus, and was one of the first to request prayers. After the meeting, She expressed a desire for a better life, but she had no place to go, save to the dens of infamy from which she came. I decided at once to take her to the Florence Knight mission, and accompanied by a friend who had assisted me in the meeting, we started. We were going towards the horse cars and congratulating ourselves that we had gotten away unobserved when we were confronted by the very Negro from whom we sought to escape. With an oath, he demanded, Where you folks taking dat girl to? It was a fearful moment, near midnight, dark street and not a soul in sight. I expected every moment that he would strike me. I was no match for him, signalling my friend to go on with the girl and taking the Negro by the coat I said excitedly, I am taking her to a Christian home, to a better life. If ever you prayed for anyone, pray for her. I know you are a bad man, but you ought to be glad to help any girl away from this place. So pray for her as you have never prayed before. All this time, my friend and the woman were going down the street as fast as possible. I had talked so fast, that the negro did not have a chance to say a word, and before he could recover from his astonishment, I ran on. He did not attempt to follow. Four cars were hailed before one would let us on. The drivers would slacken up, but seeing the woman's condition, would whip up their horses and drive on. Finally, when the next driver slackened, we lifted our frail burden to the platform before he could prevent us. Arriving at the mission, we helped her up the steps and rang the bell. She turned to me and said, You will be proud of me some day. I smiled then, as I thought the chances of being proud of her were slim. But how many times since, when vast audiences have been moved to tears by the pathos of her story, or spellbound by her eloquence, have I indeed been proud of her. She was admitted to the house, giving the assumed name of Nellie Conroy. For nine years she had lived in Baxter Street slums, becoming a victim to all the vices that attend a dissipated life, until at last she became an utter wreck. Everything was done for her at the mission, and in time... Permanent employment was found. Some time after, word reached the mission that Nellie had left her place and gone back to her old haunts in Baxter Street. A card with the address of the Florence was left at one of her resorts, and the whole matter was forgotten, until late one night the doorbell of the mission rooms softly rang, and the poor wretched object admitted proved to be Nelly. At the meeting the next night, she was the first to come forward. When asked to pray, she lifted her pale face to heaven and quoted with tearful pathos that beautiful hymn. The mistakes of my life have been many. The sins of my heart have been more, and I scarce can see for weeping. But I'll knock at the open door. Then followed a touching prayer, a humble confession of sin, an earnest pleading for pardon, a quiet acceptance of Christ by faith, a tearful thanksgiving for knowledge of sins forgiven. Her life from that time until her death, nearly two years later, was that of a faithful Christian. She gave satisfaction to her employers, she was blessed of God in her testimony at the mission, and soon she was sought after by churches, temperance societies, and missions to tell what great things the Lord had done for her. She spoke to a large assemblage of nearly 3,000 people in the Cooper Union, New York, holding the audience spellbound with her pathetic story. She possessed a wonderful gift of language and great natural wit that combined with her thrilling story made her a most interesting and entertaining speaker. She was uneducated, but she had a remarkable memory. She soon became familiar with the Bible and many were won to Christ through her testimony. Her pale face would become flushed with a hectic glow as she spoke of the wonderful things God had done for her. Glory be to his great name, she would say. It was no common blood that washed Nellie Conroy from her sins and no common power that reached down and took her from the slums of Baxter Street after nine years of sin and dissipation. It was nothing but the precious blood of Jesus that saved me. Where are my companions, who started down life's stream with me, young, fresh and happy? We started out to gather the roses of life, but found only thorns. Many of them today sleep in nameless and dishonoured graves in the potter's field. And their souls, oh, where are they? While I am spared, redeemed... Her life was indeed a changed one. From idleness, filth, drunkenness and sin, she was transformed into a neat, industrious, sober, godly woman. But sin had sown its seed, and she must reap the harvest. She grew weaker, until at last she went to the hospital to linger for months in great suffering and pain born with Christian resignation. Her constant testimony was, The love he has kindled within me makes service or suffering sweet. One day a visitor said, Nelly, you are nearing the river. Yes, she said, I have already stepped in, but God's word says, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. The promise is true. I am dry shod. At the last she could scarcely speak. She knew her end was near, and when the fourteenth chapter of St. John's Gospel was read to her, she said, My mansion is there. The comforter is here. The promise is fulfilled. Sing at my funeral." I am going home to die no more. Summoned to her bedside, the nurse bent down to hear her faintly whisper, Jesus, precious Jesus. These were her last words. Her face lit up as she seemed to catch a glimpse of the better land. And with the name of Jesus on her lips, the spirit of the once poor despised Magdalene took its flight to the bright mansions of whose possessions she had been so sure. At her funeral, many Christian workers and friends gathered to do honour to her remains. Many converts from the slums who had been won to Christ by her testimony were among the mourners, and not a few came to look on that pale face who still lived in sin and shame, but who sincerely loved one who had so often entreated them to turn and live? On the coffin plate was engraved E Stroke M Stroke aged twenty nine years died march sixteenth, eighteen eighty five. The cities and towns of almost every state find representatives in this throng of wanderers and each one means a heartbreak for someone at home. The work of the Florence mission is typical. It is simply a variation in the form of this work that goes on at the sister mission on Green Street, where much the same methods are used. Without the freedom attached to both, successful work would be impossible in this special field. There are many homes and reformatories, where a certain amount of force enters in. But none do just the work of these two. They labour for women, but in the evening meetings at the Florence mission, men are admitted, and the rules of the institution are much the same as those governing the Water Street mission. Like that also, one hears every form of testimony, pathetic, solemn, or grotesque as it may happen, but all with the same spirit of earnestness. Let an Irish brother, whose voice still lingers in my memory, and who had tried all depths of sin, have the last word from the Florence Knight Mission. A word on this whiskey, me friends. I heerd a man say whiskey was right enough in its place, which place is hell, says I. It brought me down to Hell's door, and I well know what it's like. For 24 years I was a tramp, a dirty spalping of a tramp. The brother forninst me there said God found him in his hotel. T'wasn't in nary a hotel nor lodging house, nor yet a flat the Lord found me in, but in the gutter, for I'd never a roof to me head. I came in here cold, hungry and wet and stood by the stove to dry myself, and I heard yez all tellin and tellin, and I begun to pray myself thin. I prayed God to help me, and he did. I was talking to a nigger outside, and he said to me, says he, I was an Irishman like yourself in the old country, but I got black when I come to America. You can laugh all ye like, but I tell yous me heart was as black as that nigger, when I came in here, and is white now, in the blood of the Lamb, there hope for every one of yous, if there was a ghost of a chance for me, and you better believe it. Additional note to this chapter. While the volume was passing through the press, a proof of page 229 was sent by the publisher to Mrs. A. L. Prindle, matron of the Florence Knight Mission, with a request to verify the statistics thereon given in order to ensure absolute correctness. From her letter returning the revised proof, we make the following interesting extract. Florence Knight Mission, New York, April 23rd, 1891. At this hour, 10pm, word has just been received at the mission of a very sad occurrence the woman at the right in the picture on page 229 whose head is bowed whom i remember well as shakespeare a notorious outcast well known in all this region was found murdered this morning in a cheap lodging place on water street she frequently came to the mission and was present the night you made the flashlight picture of the girls at lunch though too intoxicated to hold up her head. End of chapter 10